0: And now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. The biggest secret of the best traders in the world is that they're just like everyone else. However, they've worked hard to learn the markets and discover what works and what doesn't. But how can you hear about these journeys and get in on the strategies and tactics they use? You can do it by listening to Chat with Traders. Here's your host, Aaron Fifield.
1: Hey everyone, what's going on? Welcome to episode 35 of the Chat with Traders podcast. This week, I have a very special guest on the show who almost needs no introduction, and that is Howard Lensin. He's best known as the co-founder of StockTwits, but he's really a man who wears many hats. He's also a trader, investor, hedge fund manager, entrepreneur, and a rock star angel investor who has invested in over 100 startups at various stages. So as you could imagine, I was thrilled to have Howard on the show this week. We spoke for around about 50 minutes and discussed the early years of his career from the days of when he used to work in the back office of a brokerage firm. We also covered Howard's methodology around trading high-growth stocks and the idea of buy high, sell higher. We also got into how innovative technology may revolutionize the landscape of trading over the next 5 to 10 years. And on top of this, we also talked about some of the angel investments that Howard has been involved with. Now guys, if you enjoyed this interview, please go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash iTunes and leave a review. It doesn't have to be anything crazy, even a single sentence would be a huge help. I'd really appreciate it and it's the easiest way that you can support the show. So that's chatwithtraders.com forward slash iTunes, go there now and just leave a very brief review, that would be awesome. Thank you very much. Alright guys, I'm your host Aaron Firefield. this is the Chat With Traders podcast and here is this week's guest, Howard Linzen. Howard, welcome to the podcast, how's it going?
2: I am doing great. You, are, I am in San Diego. It's the opposite side of the world.
1: It most definitely is. So it's early morning here and I believe it's um, you know becoming evening, afternoon there. So look, Howard, thank you so much for giving up your time today to speak with me. And I mean, just share your insights and experiences with everyone who's listening. I've really been looking forward to this. It's going to be a great discussion. So again, thank you very much. No problem. I'm thinking we'll we'll break this discussion up into a few parts. So we'll talk about uh, some trading specifics. Uh, so we'll, that'll probably lead us into some discussion about trend and momentum. Also keen to speak with you about technology, innovation, and some of the angel investing work that you do. So before we get into all of that, though, I'm keen to hear about your background and where it all started for you. So... Once you graduated from high school, what was the next step from there? Maybe take us through to the point of just before you launched your hedge fund.
2: Oh, after high school, I worked in the. Um, See, I went to I went to college in London, Ontario. Nothing fancy, um, and then when I graduated '87, I didn't have a job. I mean, didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, you know, go to. School much younger in Toronto, a year younger, and I went to work in the stock market at a brokerage firm, brokerage firm in Toronto, <clears throat> right before the peak, I was working in the uh, back office, uh, order tickets would come in on a machine, like a little air terminal, the ticket would come in, you type it in the machine, it would go down to the floor, you'd get a confirmation, I mean, that's how archaic it was back in '87 which I'm sure seemed unbelievably like great progress compared to 20 years earlier. Now, basically, you can click a button on Robinhood, which is now even in Australia, and trade for free uh, right from your mobile phone. But back then, it was you know a process. I worked in the wire room, uh, knew not much about the stock market. I was probably 21. And in uh, October 87, the market crashed, and I just just never forget where you were, especially since I was in the industry. You know, people banging on the door, uh, orders piling up. You know, I was the I was the the guy. People were screaming through the window. I was the guy trying to type orders in frantically, uh, and I didn't even know what was really happening at the time. Uh, other than I could tell it was something major, and and the firm that I worked at shut down. They had, had a huge position in gold, as most Canadians like Australia is a mining uh, based and manufacturing base uh, in you know countries. And, you know, there was a heavy-duty recession, uh, the brokerage industry, you know, was buried in, in margin and, and, you know, no business for months after. And the gold stocks were hammered. So that was my introduction to, to stock markets.
1: Okay. And was that always your goal from right back in high school to once you got out to, to go into the stock market? Or was it just you just kind of wound up there by, by a bit of, bit of luck?
2: I just wanted a job. I, I, uh, my dad was a, a trader, um, an investor, but I didn't have an interest in it. So, uh, you know, I was just looking for a job. I went back to school after the market crash in 87. There were no jobs. And uh, went to move to Arizona, went to school at ASU, became a desert kind of rat, graduated And as luck would have it, or fate, I ended up, because I was a Canadian citizen looking for a job, I ended up uh, having to uh, take an ad in the paper and just became a stockbroker. It was all the the only company that was willing to sponsor me to stay in the United States was to be a stockbroker. And so I became a stockbroker knowing nothing about the stock market still.
1: Okay, and is that the point where your interest was peaked and you, you developed the fascination for trading or, or did that still come a little bit later?
2: Oh, much later. So, you know, back then you couldn't think. You were just, had to learn the market, pass your exam. It was 91 after the Gulf War. Stocks were savaged. I didn't even know any of this. So, it was a great time to be getting into the stock market. Um, and it was the end of the SNL crisis in Arizona. There was all kinds of savings and banks. You know, the banks were destroyed, uh, much like 2008, and because of the savings and loan crisis. And um, so it just turned out to be a great point. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just trying to sell what the firm had. Uh, it was a pretty good firm. You know, they weren't. We weren't selling penny stocks or anything. I mean, I had my list of stuff I would call, call cold call. It was back then you would do cold calls. And so uh slowly that's what you know how I started to learn the market. No had no mentors other than from a sales perspective. You know, I was taught how to sell. Um so I tried to keep it simple, but you know, over time I just became fascinated with stocks and prices and you know, it took me probably maybe ninety seven, ninety one, I mean, it was twenty four years later, I've learned a thing or two.
1: Okay, sure. No, that's that's awesome. So between being a stockbroker and launching your hedge fund, what what went on in that period? How do you make that transition?
2: You start meeting people. Uh, you know, get a little older. I uh, was fascinated with the market. Slowly over time, people i people had started to trust me. And it was a bull market, so everybody thinks they can do it in the mid 90s to the late 90s. So I think a combination of all those factors, plus knowing a lot of successful people, I decided to strike out on my own and start a hedge fund knowing nothing about it. And in 98, when you started a hedge fund, you were like uh, theoretically at the top of the market. You know, flash forward 17 years, hedge funds are more popular than ever, even though they've been supposed to have been dead for the last 20 years. So, you know, the lesson there being it's never too late to start a business no matter what the category is. You got to love what you're doing and be able to ride the ups and downs, you know. And so the same thing applies to every aspect of, you know, working or entrepreneurship or what I talk to my kids about is like I remember starting that hedge fund and people going, nah, who doesn't have a hedge fund? And this was in 98, you know, during the Kramer uh, street.com passionate era of blogging and writing, or, or the street.com at least with blogging, and Jim Kramer was like, oh, of course you're starting a hedge fund. Who wouldn't? And, you know, I've been running that hedge fund for 17 years now, and it's it turned it into um, a big business, a small business, because I'm too busy, and I've, you know, my passion has been more about private company investing, not so much trading other people's money, uh so my my main passion is investing my own money and investing in startups but that's how it's evolved but i still have that hedge fund 17 years later
1: absolutely and i'm really keen to get into those those two things you just mentioned there um just while we're on the hedge fund topic um did you have any experience actually trading your own money before you went into launching the hedge fund
2: yeah yeah my uh my parents divorced. My mom had no idea. She had a little bit of money. I was 19, so I was stuck. That was my original, I think you're, you're, I've written something about this way back, but the the thesis being, you know, your original exposure to risk and management, uh, you know, really shapes your risk profile later on. So when I uh, um, had to take over my mom's account, I couldn't risk losing a dollar. And it's kind of the same unfortunate or fortunate way that I look at uh, the same unfortunate way or, or fortunate way I say I look at how I deal with other people's money today is that uh, where I struggled in the stock market was I couldn't afford to lose money. So it's not a great place to be if you can't take risk. And so my strategy has always been a little bit more conservative. Over time, I've developed a a much more aggressive strategy around uh, momentum, and things in motion tend to stay in motion, but definitely not good for my mom, or uh, it's definitely good for my money because I feel comfortable with it, but I I don't like managing that strategy for other people's money, which is why my hedge fund doesn't take new money and why I focused on private companies because... I'm all about a momentum. If my investors understand that they could lose all their money, and that's the way you know, you know when you when you invest in a an angel fund, which we've started through social leverage, my investors expect me to take big risk on big trends, and bad things could happen. So you know it's in managing the expectations of my clients and my own lifestyle and risk profile. That's how over 17 years you end up with you know evolving your your thesis and your product so that uh, my risk profile fits the risk profile of my investors.
1: Absolutely. Okay. That's really well said. Um, Now, this is a question I usually ask to guests on the show. And I usually ask them, what were some of their biggest challenges as a developing trader? But in your case, let's open this up. So what were some of your greatest challenges or failures in your early years as a trader slash entrepreneur slash investor?
2: Well, I think, like I said, the structure of my life around risk is because I had some of my mom's money that she couldn't afford to lose. You know, I knew it had to last. She's still alive today, so that's 30 years later. I was 19, 19, 29, 39, 49, 49. so 30 years later of managing her small nest egg, I've had a you know, knowing that I'd have to support uh, whatever – difference there was, you know, assuming she lived till 100. So I've always been, you know, that's where my risk profile was structured for good or bad. Um, mistake wise in starting a hedge fund, uh, who made so many, I mean, obviously starting it in June 98, the Asia crisis happened right after the 2000 crash and 2008. So, uh, plenty of mistakes. Most of my mistakes more have been about people than about stocks. You know, I'm pretty good at taking losses. I'm, uh, you know, turned out, turned out. I've learned to not listen to the TV, and you know, I read uh, people that think like me, not because I want to form fit my ideas, but just you know, strategically wise. I, I listen to, I try and just focus on my strategy, so I don't bring in outside noise. Um, so all those mistakes that people continue to make about trying to just have too many styles or survive in every single market. I'm not survive so much, but thrive in every single tick of the market. Um, you know, once I settled on my style and, and communicated well with my limited partners and my and clients and they understood what I was doing, they never had to bug me and I never had to worry about what they were thinking because uh, they knew what I was doing. Um, I think most investors just try uh, to make money all the time, it seems like. And it's hard not to because the market is, you know, just right there for us every day, all day. And I think the great investors will tell you, uh, and I'm, it's a lifelong process, but the great investors will tell you that uh, they just don't trade that much. Most of the time, you're just sitting. So, you know, that's what's, by sitting has allowed my life to expand and my portfolio to expand because by sitting, you have a lot more time to look at more things and really kind of the, the, the good pitches uh, you're just more aware of uh, instead of just hacking away every day at the, at the market.
1: Okay. So let's dig into your strategy then. How would you best describe your approach to trading? Uh, from what I understand, you're both into you know trend following as well as momentum trading. So, so would you like to elaborate on your actual methodology for, for trading?
2: Yeah, nothing fancy. I mean, the, the basic example is buy high, sell higher. An um, IBD philosophy or uh, Bill O'Neill is that stocks in motion uh, tend to stay in motion. Um, and I'm small enough that, uh, I've just kind of evolved my strategy to think like a pilot fish, you know, sharks are, are out there moving the waters and I'm just riding there with them as long as I can and have pretty good cell discipline. I would say every time I make a mistake, it's generally around selling, not buying. Um, and, uh, in the private market, it's a little different, uh, because you're not liquid. So in the public markets, I like to swim in the most liquid markets because, uh, you know, you can change your mind very quickly. Uh, there's there's liquidity. Um, and then in the private markets where things are illiquid, uh, I it's still a very much a momentum-based strategy around trends and applying them to private industries, but a little more sensitive, obviously, to price early on because they are illiquid.
1: Mm, absolutely. So... So just um, talking about the, the public markets still, what are some guidelines or, or perhaps common characteristics to discovering the big market winning trends before they actually happen?
2: Well, I, they, te- they tend to happen in consumer stocks, whether it's restaurants, fashion, um, or consumer brands uh, like Apple. Uh, they, they generally are easy to, they're brands that you're already using. One of the best stocks of all times is Philip Morris. So I would say it's still a consumer brand. Uh, it's a sin stock as well. And 99% of us have never owned it unless it's been in an ETF of ours, uh, for as good a stock as it's been. So, you know, they're generally brands that you've heard of, uh, shockingly, whether it's Nike, Under Armour, um, Apple, Google, I consider all these uh, consumer stocks, not, not uh, technology stocks, because we use their products every day, uh, Chipotle's, and these are right in front of us most of the time, and then generally, uh, they stay overvalued for extremely, you know, five to ten year periods, uh, some of them longer. Uh, but generally, you know, you know, I can hold stocks three to five years, uh, that, 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 that makes my job easier. It doesn't always happen that way, but I'm looking for things that just are part of bigger consumer trends.
1: Okay, and you mentioned a little bit earlier that you like to buy high and sell higher. Um, So so you're looking at stocks that are breaking into all-time highs, and I've just got two questions around that. What is it you like about stocks that break into all-time highs? Like, why is that a good thing? And do you also pay attention to perhaps shorting opportunities that occur from stocks breaking down into all-time lows?
2: Yeah, I would think that you know definitely on all-time lows, there's a strategy that works, but mathematically, over all the money that I've ever wasted learning and spending on shortening stocks and looking at the Fortune 500 list, I don't know anybody who really is you know, if I were to look at Buffett and some of the best investors, they don't short stocks. Um, they ignore them, and they use cash. Uh, and so no, shorting is just like, I'll talk about it occasionally, I have this feeling about the market, but I'm never right, because the math is stacked against you generally, and um, so no, shorting is generally out, and then all-time highs is just something that works for me, you know, it's counterintuitive, most people ignore this, even though there's so much data available on how the strategy works. Nobody cares. God forbid you tell somebody momentum. Their their heart seizes and their ears close, and they think it's voodoo. Um, And I like knowing that. I mean, if everybody did it, it it wouldn't be as easy. And uh, investing is hard. Uh, Buying high, selling higher means that you are buying stocks that are obviously discovered because people own them, but at the same time, they also are highly shorter because the professionals, uh, you know, love to hedge and love to bet against companies to get paid their two and 20. And um, you know, historically, stocks that are at all-time highs got there for a reason. They were on an all-time high list the day before, a week before, a month before. So um, great companies, growing really fast with catalysts tend to make hundreds of all-time highs and so it just makes common sense to me uh, as a small investor to to follow those type of trends it's not for everybody right like it's not for everybody it's just I like to keep things really simple and if I buy a stock at an all-time high it means there's no resistance Uh, everybody who owns the stock is profitable uh, everybody who's short the stock is freaking out and that's potential buyers and, um, you know, it's – and then when I can combine it with a catalyst like, oh my god, this is a product that's being underrated or undervalued or, you know, really simple stuff like, oh my god, this company, you know, when it was Apple, it was like, fuck, there were 60 stores. I'm like, I could see 60 stores just in China and this is like eight years ago. So, you know, buying it when it was 60 stores just in the United States uh, seemed like just a simple good idea and the stock was, you know, had been at all-time highs for three, four years already by 2006. So, you know, in hindsight, it doesn't look that crazy. Same with Chipotle's when they went public, uh, what were they, a couple hundred stores, and yes, McDonald's was selling their shares, but in the end, that, you know, it was just early in the, in the growth process. And Wall Street likes growth, like in the end, like, you know, try not to overthink it. Wall Street still pays up for growth, historically and always.
1: Okay. So, so once a stock's broken through to all-time highs, there's no like previous highs that, that might act as resistance. What are perhaps some warning signs or, or red flags that you watch for, which may indicate that a trend is nearing an end?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. A lot of it is just feel. A lot of it is trial and error. A lot of it is your own risk preference. You know, I can sell on the way up. I generally sell on the way up. So, you know, I leave tons of money on the table. Uh, The greatest trader is pyramid in. I'm pyramiding out. So, but again, that goes back to my risk profile uh, and the fear of losing money uh, is greater than my uh, joy of making tons of money. And that's, you know, you've got to live with what you got and you can't, uh, I, you know, I've just live within those means. But um, the signs are generally, well, sometimes you never get a warning. So just blindly buying all-time highs is not, you know, a perfect strategy. Um, and sometimes, you know, I get the catalyst wrong and stocks implode without much warning. But most of the time, stocks uh, give you uh, a, f- a few warnings in price and volume um, they give you warnings around an earnings and sometimes you get one warning and the trend is over and sometimes, you know, it's a fake warning, but you know, you just have to have your money management skills. Some people, you know, have 10% drawdown rules. Some people have 15%. I'm more, you know, a blended, you know, if I really believe in the trend and the market's strong, I may give a stock more room. Um uh, just depends. There's not one fit. There's not one style fits all. And I'm very unscientific. Ivan, who trades for me, and is a young guy, Ivanov, who you know works for me. Has his own style that he deploys on top of my style. But generally, you know, right now I'm long uh, a couple stocks that I don't fully have the full thesis on, but I use their products and I'm bullish on them, uh, Chegg and Lulu. So those are two new additions that you know they they're not at all time highs. They're they're very strong right now in a tough tape, and I understand what I think are the catalysts. You know, I, I think one is you know evolving into a huge learning platform, and the other Lulu is products that uh, I use all the time. And so I think both are trends that uh, you know. While the stocks aren't at all time highs, I break my rules all the time for stocks in good uptrends. Um, But, uh, you know, aren't quite at all-time highs. And then Nike and Under Armour, I've been long for, you know, on and off for five, six years, mostly on, where, you know, the stocks have been at around all-time highs for most of the last five years.
1: Okay, sure. You've
0: seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then
3: and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more.
1: Now, this is something I've heard you say a few times in the past, and that is there are no experts. So I'm interested to know what makes you actually say this.
2: Well, the market's the expert, so The market decides. You know, you can fight the market and get run over, or you can be the market, like like uh, uh, Goldman or Warren Buffett. They basically are big enough; they are the market and they make the market. But if you're not making the market, you uh, have to uh, respect it. And so, I don't think any. I don't listen to anybody except the price and volume. And my own instincts around catalysts, the products themselves. So, you know, Wall Street's all about, oh, this guy said this and that guy said that, and the CEO said this. And I'm more about what are the consumers doing with those products and and being more in tune at the street level with what's happening. And then if the price and volume confirms what I'm thinking, I'm like, I love that um and i don't care what anybody's saying because there are no experts because the market has decided what the price and the volume is
1: yeah i mean i really like that quote because i mean as a as a young trader um and someone who's coming up it can be very easy for for them to be influenced
2: well you need a mentor so you know if i can be a mentor to people but you're not gonna you have to listen to me for hours to find two nuggets i guess because i'm you know, rambling on but um, you know I didn't have great mentors so you know the young people today have great you know like I said I was a stockbroker and they just threw me in a room with like fill a binder full of like Blockbuster and Compaq and the shit that we're selling and go sell that. Uh, it wasn't like I had time to learn the intricacies of the market now you can go on StockTwits and find 200 people that are expert in one a specific subject um, and you can get right to learning anywhere on the web much quicker and you can trade for free so I mean, whew, uh, I mean, if I'd only known. So you know, at StockTwits and anything that we're focused on, Robinhood, which we're investors in, we're we're focused on helping people, you know, onboard and learn the language of the markets much quicker. That's all we can do. do. That's all we can do is give people the tools to learn quicker, but not tell them this is we're the experts or you know that's we're not selling anything other than the magic of oh my god, the markets are awesome. Uh, it's like learning Spanish takes a while and you're better to immerse yourself into it and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to offend people and you're going to, uh, but you know that's the market.
1: Of course, yeah. So while you mentioned StockTwits there, um, I mean I'm sure you get asked this all the time, but what actually sparked the idea for StockTwits? Did you see a genuine need for a service like this at the time?
2: Yeah, I don't use Bloomberg. Don't read Wall Street Journal. Don't watch CNBC. Um, I was using, I was reading some blogs of venture capitalists, really discovering trend following, and I was a momentum IBD guy. So, you know, reading Investors Business Daily every day or on the weekend, and. Uh, Twitter started and I uh, had an opportunity to invest early and I was using Twitter and I was like oh my god, Twitter for stocks would be amazing this was 2007 Um, and I emailed Fred Wilson who was one of the biggest investors in Twitter a friend of mine and said Twitter for stocks would be incredible, why don't they do this and he said, why don't you start it and so I kind of got, you know um dared into starting stock which was originally built on the twitter platform just you know figuring twitter would just incorporate it and either acquire it or partner and i would just help curate the financial like section of it you know like a financial part of twitter which in hindsight that's what you know i think the best part of twitter still is and then slowly stock has built its own platform that uh, doesn't rely uh, on Twitter but uses Twitter to get leads and find smart people and Stocktwits is its own reliant ecosystem, self-reliant ecosystem of traders and investors. So really started out as just uh, an idea to work on top of Twitter but Twitter had its limitations and we wanted to build a community just for traders and you know that's how Stocktwits started. So it's been uh, almost 7 years
1: for sure, and a lot of listeners, I'm sure, are active users on StockTwits. What's the What's the advantage to to these traders who who use StockTwits, particularly the newer traders who are using this platform? Like, how can they get the most out of it?
2: Hmm. Well, it's different strokes for different folks. I can't if I could explain it, we'd only be a hundred people because they would all think like me. Um, God, it's so big that I don't even know all the different reasons people use it. But for me, you know, I'm, I'm mainly on the mobile app these days. So all I think about is mobile because I'm on the road. And I've always wanted a product that allows me to catch up on my watch list really quickly uh, and have the key people that I know follow that stock to be able to talk to quickly if I need something. And then on a bigger picture, you know, who are the eight or ten people that Global Macro look down Uh, and can give me, you know, end-of-day kind of readings uh, in five minutes. You know, how do I catch up on the market really fast from my iPhone? That was always the goal. And we're finally getting there with our latest apps. Um, And on the website, I mean, there's a million ways to use the product. You know, you can start by searching by tickers. Uh, You can follow me and say hello, uh, just to be able to access some of the greatest traders who are doing it for their own reasons, most of the time just to journal and keep themselves accountable and, and to their own money. I think what people misunderstand is the reason people use stock twits, the, the good ones, um, or at least why I use it, is just to write my own ideas down so that I can be called out on it. You know, and I don't want to tell people what to do. I just want to, I just want to write down what I do. And I think that's the big difference of stock twits, I hope, over old media, which was everything pre-Twitter and including Twitter, unfortunately, where there's so much spam and penny stock chatter. But, um, but the idea for me is here's what I'm doing. Uh, tell me why I'm crazy. Uh, and you don't have to do it, but I'm just, I'm just journaling what I'm doing and then updating it.
1: Yeah, I, I like that answer and I like how you mentioned access and the, I think that's a that's a really valuable um, feature of, of StockTwits is being able to access, you know, other great traders and network with, with others who, who may be net- more advanced. I
2: mean, it's just finding mentors, networking, saying hello, being, you know, if you're not nice, you're generally going to be angry and, and confrontational. You're not going to last but an hour on StockTwits. We've built a culture which is like, hey man, like you can hang out and take all my ideas and question me all you want, but you know, don't don't call names and you know, don't attack. And that's been a hard kind of culture to build, but I think we've succeeded. Um, that may not be a billion dollar idea, but it's definitely something we're proud of.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it's it's helping a lot of people, so that that's a good thing. Now let's let's move this discussion along a little bit to to talk about some technology and innovation that that you've seen uh, coming through in this space. So, I mean, in the past, you, you've said there's never been a better time to start a business than there is right now. Would you say that's perhaps the same? Would you say the same applies to traders of today?
2: It was very one way. Like you read a research report written by some dude or some
1: lady. And now I don't know
2: why I would. The only reason I read people here is because they show up every day and they're willing to be yelled at if they're wrong or laughed at. Uh, Not that you should yell or laugh at them, but like man, we're people here pouring their ideas out and are accountable. uh, And you know, seven years later, still doing it. Um, So I think the the difference is, you know, the hierarchy has changed. Back then, you had to have a title, you had to have this pulpit. And you had to earn your way into that, and then once you were on it, it was hard to kick you off, even if you sucked. Now it's like, fuck, if you don't have the game, you're not going to last an hour on Stock Twits, and if you do have the game, uh, you know you're going to be revered. But y- you know you're only as good as your last, you know, six months. So if you're going to, you know, you 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 just have to consistently share and journal and contribute, otherwise you you're not going to make it. And that's kind of the market, right? If you really want to be around forever, you gotta love doing it, and you gotta love sharing, and you gotta be wrong all the time. Sometimes as much as sixty percent of the time. That's, who the hell wants to do that, other than baseball players? Baseball players are the only other people who are like three hundred. You're hitting three hundred, you're a fucking all star. The other times, seventy percent of the time, they're walking back to the dugout with their fucking you know head in their ass, <laughs> right? And they're like still come out like knowing that 70% of the time they're going to look like an idiot chasing a pitch or grounding out weekly to the shortstop and that's kind of the market.
1: Yeah, you've definitely got to get uh, comfortable with losing. Yeah. Uh, that's that's for sure. There's, there's no way around that. Yeah. Um, what changes do you anticipate coming to the trading landscape over the next, say, 5 to 10 years, particularly in the retail space?
2: Well, I think we get more of the same. It's obviously mobile. Uh, you're going to have to consume these products on mobile. So we're going to see with the, with the beginning of like mobile trading, pure mobile like a, a Robin Hood and the ensuing knockoffs and copycats and lookalikes, people are going to be able to open an account in two minutes. They're going to be able to follow smart people. They're going to be able to execute a trade for free. They're going to be able to follow mentors. And they're going to be able to do all this from a link on a mobile phone. Um, that's pretty revolutionary. I don't know if we could ask for much more. Um, But it took 20 years for us to go from 1991, which was the beginning of the, the, I mean, 2001, which was the end of the last bubble, to where we are today, you know, which was when E-Trade and TD Ameritrade and Schwab were in their heydays and coming to the end of, you know, the e-brokerage. And now we're finally having some innovation in, in mobile brokerage, which is like a whole new generation of millennials globally who uh, either are going to inherit money or have their first job and you know may not want to just dollar cost average, which has been droned into their heads for the last 10 years, and may actually want to buy the stock of Facebook or Twitter or GoPro or Shake Shack, uh, to use U.S. stock examples. And, you know, they don't trust E-Trade, Schwab, Goldman Sachs, Bloomberg. They don't even know about them. All well, the last time they heard about them was Jon Stewart making fun of them. And, um, you know, so they download an app on their phone and they discover investing for their first time and they can do it with two grand and they can buy 10 shares of Facebook dollars for zero commission. If it goes to 95 the next day, they made 50 bucks. They don't have to owe 30 of that in commission. And they had just... They just They just basically paper traded with real money and had a great experience. Uh, That's much like what Uber did to the old taxi industry. So I think we're at a renaissance point for people to do it themselves. And that's great for global markets, uh, especially with startups at all-time highs. So it's just this massive opportunity. Uh, And so for the young people that are learning how to do this, they're just going to have a lifetime of investing ahead of them. So it's an exciting time. It sounds like some kind of cheerleader, but I mean, it's so obvious. This trend is so obvious.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a big shift coming through. So no, that's, that's really good to get your take on it. Um, now let's shift this along to the last part of this interview. And I'm keen to ask you about your angel investing um, and experiences you've had around that. So I mean, at what point of your career did you begin getting into angel investing and maybe also if you could share with us why you got into this, like what motivated you to to go in this direction?
2: Uh, You know, my first angel investment was a cold call that I made as a a stockbroker in 92 maybe, you know, I was just calling, looking, dialing for dollars and we would open up the newspaper in Phoenix, the business journal, and I would just call people that I thought were rich that, that were written about and then pitch them on opening a stock market account. And one of the guys that I called Mark who's a great guy, ended up investing in his company. You know, I go down to pitch him to open a stock account thinking that he was rich and he needed money from – he was raising money for his company and he talked me into investing in it. And that's how I got going on angel investing and it just turned out to be a great investment. Um, but it wasn't easy. I mean it sucked up five, six years of my life and we made tons and tons of money and we had one of the great consumer products. But so you know, I got into angel investing by mistake. But you know, the passion was there. I had the education, I had the will, I had the you know, I, I loved to sell and I love cool products, and uh, you know, that's how I, I got the bug. And then I just kept writing checks. You know, it just I, I was kind of a sucker for a good pitch. And you know, over 20 years, 92 was my first investor. 23 years of angel investing. I figured I know a little bit now.
1: <laughs> no doubt so what is it that actually attracts you to mostly tech investments over other industries
2: i you know i like consumer products so i would say tech applies to everything now um so i'm more consumer focused consumer it's just interesting to me because it could become a billion dollar company i mean it's harder to build but i mean why not build something that could change the world um and Uh, so I would say it's more consumer, but technology just is such a bigger factor in every company right now because of scale and costs of starting these businesses and using Amazon web services and, you know, having a laptop and an iPhone or a droid, uh, shit, everything's technology. And so if you don't know how to use these tools, you know, you're just going to have a small local business. Uh, but now any small local business can be a global business, you know? So, um, you know, consumer is number one. The, the the main thing that attracts me is stuff that I'm passionate about, like why well, just money is a commodity and I'm not rich enough to just throw it around. So I generally like to invest in companies that I either discover myself or that are fit into my thesis around financial technology and financial web, um, which uh, led me to Robin Hood and my whole thesis and stock twits. But, um, you know, I invest in, in great, founders who have this insane passion around a problem that they're generally solving for themselves because they have this huge interest and something's bothering them but then those interests generally end up having a huge audience uh and you know i've invested in a few billion dollar companies at the beginning to know that a lot of times you just could not imagine them being well almost every time they they don't start out as billion dollar ideas but they're kind of unicorn founders you know they throw around the word unicorn a lot but generally it's the founder that's the unicorn it's just someone who's willing to fight and scrap and pivot and change their product and get shat on and yelled at and uh been told their product sucks but really know that they're solving a problem that then you know 10,000 people start using and then once it's at 10,000 people you know how do you get it to 100,000 and that's where the technology applies and then how do you get it from a hundred to a million so they're all different stages. I like to find the companies that have great founders. Uh, there's a clear path, a hypothesis to get to 10,000 type customers or users uh, and that already have one passionate user, whether they're paying or not, or two. And that's kind of where we invest. And, you know, as I get older, I move a little bit further up the food chain because I'm just old, and not willing to do as much of the, you know, the little bit of work. Um, but. Hopefully, that gives you a little bit of insight.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So just one more question around that. Now that you've invested in like 100-plus startups and companies all at various stages, I'm sure there's a few deals that um, you, you've turned down at the time and you, you later kick yourself for. Are you able to share an example of maybe one or two deals that, that you've let go which have um, you maybe wish you hadn't of?
2: Yeah, different reasons. So this thing I passed on, I knew Mark Pincus... Uh, I really had agreed to invest in the deal. We were having an argument over another company that we had invested in and, and Buddy Media, which turned out to be like a huge company, uh, but we were I had brought Mark into that deal um, and he didn't like the way it was going and was complaining and came up with his idea for Zynga and I agreed to invest. We had agreed on a price. And that price quickly changed to a number that I wasn't willing to invest in a few a few months later. And so I I just on principle didn't invest and I should have invested. I think 100 grand would be worth 10 million. Um, and so that's a bad one. The lesson there is even if you don't, if the founder wants to be a billionaire and you have a chance to invest with them and they're willing to do what it takes to be a billionaire, you're pretty silly not to invest in them. Uh, and I think that's why people just continue to give Warren Buffett money at a premium is the guy is just like, you know, until he drops, he's going to try and beat the market. Um, second is Twitter. I mean, I love the product. I thought the price was overvalued. Uh, that was dumb. At $20 million, I think. I, I thought, what? You're crazy. $20 million? How could, that, how could I possibly make money? Uh, whoops. That would be a big one. Probably the biggest mistake because I liked the product. And then uh, one that I just didn't put enough work into was hotels tonight. I just didn't know the travel business, and I uh, I got pitched that very early, probably like a two million valuation. It's kind of like Uber for hotels, or, or it's like a very last minute hotel booking site using mobile. And I think it's my favorite product. I travel a lot. I don't have to book a hotel. I can just show up and land, and it's location based. Uh, anyway, so I use that app, and every time I use the app, I'm like, ah, should have invested. <laughs> so that one hurts the most because I, like, love the app, and it's going to be around until it gets acquired by for a big number. Zing uh, I, I never was, like, a fan of the product, so, you know, that's just money. And Twitter is just a complete mistake, but it's, I can live with it because I have a lot of shares that I got from investing around the space and stock twits and ended up with shares on Twitter 'Cause I invested in TweetDeck. So Twitter I got right for enough that it doesn't hurt as much. Um but I would say Zynga just because of the stupidity of price and just you know, being being stubborn. And then uh Hotels Tonight just because I just didn't see it. But I was offered it.
1: Yeah. I mean that's you know, some hard lessons in there. And I mean, it's really interesting to hear you, hear you talk about that. Thank you for sharing those. Um, now, how this has been really, really good. Uh, I've just got one more question and then we'll we'll call it a wrap. And this question I like to ask to majority of the guests and it kind of circles back to trading now. But why do you believe the majority of traders never reach a high level of success?
2: Well, I think they I think they just don't have the mentorship and they just give up. It's a, it's a long process. I just think they have a really bad experience, and, and uh, it's not for everybody. Like, I mean, investing is a, is a privilege, not a right. So maybe it's good that that happens. But I think most people give up because they can't find a mentor or the, the barriers, what the media drums on people is, oh, you can't beat the market. And I agree, it's not easy to beat the market, but, and I don't even think beating the market should be in the vocabulary, it should be about destroying. If you're going to do this, like, why would I do it to earn 12% a year when the S&P is like 9% a year? i do it because I want to have 80% years and 100% years or more. And therefore, if that was easy, so most people just give up because they have the wrong expectations. And they started for the wrong reasons. Um, So that's the main reason people give up. I can't help those people. But if you have the right expectations when you're starting, um, I would say that's the greatest, you know, hindrance is people just have the wrong, you know, the wrong framework for getting started. And both are, uh, you solve all those, right? Like I'm, you know, podcasts. I'm telling people the truth um, from my own experiences. This wasn't as easily accessible in 1990 when I started. And now there's no excuse not to dig into a few podcasts or try a few financial sites and see if you can find a mentor. And then expectation-wise, the same thing. It's like I would say to anybody starting. started What is your expectation? Well, you know, I want to, you know, I just want to earn more than cash. Well, you should dollar cost average. That's not, you know, that person should be dollar cost averaging and do, you know, low cost ETFs. But if a person says, you know what, I I think I can make 80% a year. Well, then I say, well, listen, expect to lose, have years where you're down 40%. But if you're willing to ride that out, then you should dig in and start learning and finding a strategy that fits that risk profile.
1: Totally. All right, Howard. Well, where can listeners go to connect with you and just generally find out more about you?
2: Uh, easy to find me all day on StockTwits. And, you know, I have a blog that I've written for seven, eight years, or maybe more now, nine years, uh, howardlinzen.com, L-I-N-D-Z-O-N.com.
1: Okay. And what's your uh, StockTwits handle?
2: It's just my name, Howard Lindzen.
1: Okay. And it's, you go by that on Twitter as well also, right?
2: Yeah. It's just easy to say
1: hello. Awesome. All right. Well, I will make sure to put all these links in the show notes, and they'll be at uh, this is this will be episode thirty five. So it'll be chatwithtraders.com forward slash thirty five, and you can find links and a recap on the show with you know notes, quotes, and all that sort of thing um, that we that we've discussed uh, during this discussion. So, Howard, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day and and sharing you know being so open with us and in, in your answers it's it's been phenomenal
2: okay cool congrats on doing 35 shows it's not easy
1: thank you very much all right Howard we'll take care and we'll talk soon
2: okay cheers
1: hey guys it's just me again thanks a lot for listening to this episode I hope you really enjoyed it and I can tell you for certain that it was a great opportunity to speak with Howard um, so thanks again for listening to to this discussion I hope there's a few points that you're going to take away from this. So just a very friendly reminder, if you could, please go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash iTunes and leave a very brief review. Like I mentioned at the beginning, it doesn't have to be anything major. Just a single sentence would be a massive help. And in case you're wondering why I like to ask for reviews... It's because essentially the more reviews that Chat With Traders receives in iTunes, the better the show ranks and, of course, the more listeners, that um, the more ears we can attract to the show. So if you could, go to chatwithtraders.com forward slash iTunes and leave a very brief review. And for what it's worth, I'd like to thank each and every person who leaves a review. So once you've left a review, shoot me an email and I'll respond with a great big thank you because I really do appreciate it. Uh, And my email address is just aaron at chatwithtraders.com. All right, guys, have an awesome week and let's talk very soon. You've come to the end of this episode of Chat with Traders, but don't worry,
0: more great episodes are on the way. To stay updated with each great new episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, and we'd love it if you leave us a rating and review. We'll see you next time on Chat with Traders.